This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. If you're looking for the China History Podcast, don't touch that dial. You found it. Taiwan History Part 7 today. It had been just over 300 years since the adventurous Dutch seafaring merchants established their trading base in present-day Tainan. And over the past six episodes, we've traced many of the historical milestones stretching from the Ming to the Qing. And since 1895, Taiwan had been a colony of Japan. We saw how there was no small amount of local resistance against the Japanese. Both the Taiwanese and indigenous people waged battles against them in fits and starts, many of them quite gruesome in the way the fighting was carried out, not to mention what followed when it was over. So by 1930, those Taiwanese who had been openly defiant were either dead, in prison, or sufficiently beaten down to the point where they bottled up their hatreds and moved on. Japan by then only had 15 more years of colonial rule on Taiwan. 1930, if you told anyone in the Japanese imperial diet that in 15 years, their nation would lie in smoking ruins, no one would have believed you. The ongoing development of Taiwan continued on unabated, as if it would remain part of Japan forever. There are a number of things that happened during the 1930s on Taiwan. And the first thing I'd like to look at was the 1935 Taiwan Exposition. By any standard of colonization, the Japanese had done quite a few nice things on the island. And in 1935, five years before the launching of the ill-fated Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, the great mines in Tokyo and Taihoku decided to showcase their great achievements to the world. The subliminal message was, look what we did. And to the people of the East Asian region, the message was, look what we can do for you. This expo that the Empire of Japan put on was something else. It was Japan at its best. All these past world expos in London, Paris, and Vienna. Well, now it was Japan's turn to walk out onto the world stage and shake it a few times. It was held in Taipei, Taihoku back then, and there were three main venues, two downtown and one up in Beitou. A fourth place was added in the Dadaocheng district that showcased all the industrial and commercial exhibits. Everyone from Zaibatsu companies like Mitsui to local Taiwan manufacturers displayed there. All the accomplishments of 40 years of Japanese rule over Taiwan were showcased in spectacular fashion. And using the occasion to honor Emperor Hirohito's first decade on the throne eh, gave the expo even further gravitas. No expense was spared. The Japanese government subsidized the event with local tycoons also making sizable donations. Everybody got in on the act. Although the main show was up in Taipei, there were also branch exhibitions held at all the major cities of Taiwan. Governor General Nakagawa Kenzo was in charge and was tasked with making this mega soft power project go off without a hitch. For 50 days, between October 10th and November 28th, 1935, Japan laid it on thick. 
everything was on display for the world to see. Japanese and Taiwanese products were showcased, as well as exhibits on agriculture, urban planning, transportation, civil services, culture and recreation. There was music, theater, art, and plenty to eat. Up in Beitou, they had all kinds of touristy activities to engage in, mostly revolving around the hot springs there. There were sporting events, conferences, and all kinds of activities for locals and tourists alike to enjoy. It was a two-month-long party. Residents all over Taiwan were encouraged to attend and participate. And not only that, Japan also had a couple other colonial ventures going in Korea and Manchuria. Over in China's northeast, the Manchukuo Puppet State was already in its third year. These two were represented at the expo, glowingly, of course. Why show off one colony when you could show off three? The Republic of China government was invited to send a delegation. The venue that was set up in Dadaocheng also displayed the wares of Guangdong and Fujian companies. All kinds of military hardware was also on display. Most of the two and three-quarter million attendees came from Taiwan, Japan, and China. But there were also plenty of international visitors who were equally wowed by the displays and by Japan's achievements as a colonizer and a modern society. In 1935, when this whole extravaganza was held, Taiwan was at the peak of its economic might. Japan had taken this island that had previously only experienced minor reforms and turned it into one of the most modern societies in all of Asia, with one of the highest standards of living. Let me also mention that six months before the start of the Taiwan Expo, on April 21st, 1935, there was another powerful and destructive earthquake, the deadliest one to ever hit Taiwan up to that time and ever since. This one had a magnitude of 7.1. It was called the 1935 Shinchiku Taichu Earthquake. It was centered in Taichung, and within seconds of this quake, a second one occurred further north in Xinju Ume Township, and that one measured 6.0. Altogether, 3,276 people died in this natural disaster. More than 12,000 were injured, and more than 50,000 houses were either destroyed or damaged. Shinchiku, again, is Xinju Prefecture, and Taichu was the Japanese name for Taichung. Despite all that, the expo went off without a hitch, and Japan got to enjoy a nice, healthy dose of shine in front of the world, not to mention play to the home crowd. Japan was never looking better. Only 81 years had passed since the Convention of Kanagawa had been signed. Japan had gone from a military shogunate that had been around since 1603, and now they were this modern, shining star on the world stage who had just humbled China and Russia in battle. They had gone on to establish colonies, just like the big boys in Europe. After a few days touring the exhibits at the Taiwan Expo, no one could deny that Japan was a global player. None of the events that have since tarred Japan's modern history had happened yet. But the deeper we get into the 1930s, all of that was about to change. Now, before we look at the outbreak of hostilities between Japan and China, starting with the Marco Polo Bridge incident, let's first look at a well-known chapter of Taiwan history from this time. And this was the Kominka Movement. Kominka was Japanese for the Chinese Huangminhua. Huangmin eh, translates to people of the emperor, and hua means to transform. 
to turn these Taiwanese colonists into loyal subjects of the emperor. The whole matter of assimilation and trying to push things in that direction had been going on since the day the Japanese got settled there. Great strides had been made, but it was obvious people were still holding on to their Hokkien, Hakka Chinese cultural identity. The Kominka movement didn't just appear out of nowhere. Kominka was more about accelerating Japanization throughout society and stepping on the gas to more quickly arrive at the desired destination. As the ultranationalists and militarists in Japan got closer to pulling the trigger on July 7, 1937, Admiral Kobayashi Seizo was selected to be the next governor general of Taiwan. Where Kominka was concerned, on Taiwan, he was the man. Kobayashi was in charge of marshalling all the resources and using them to win the hearts and minds of the Taiwanese people. Now, bear in mind, everything that was going on with the Kominka movement on Taiwan was also happening in almost the same way in Korea. They had been incorporated into the empire in 1910. It was about time they got on board with the program. So these measures being discussed in Taiwan, the Koreans put up with the same thing. So the thinking on high that prompted the green lighting of the Kominka movement was the idea that between the two colonies of Korea and Taiwan, there were about 27 million people, many of whom were old enough to fight in the coming war when called upon. And in order to achieve that aim, uh, you first needed a period of indoctrination, hence the Kominka movement. Now, it's one thing to carry a national ID card that's written in Japanese and to speak the language and know the culture inside out, but it's a whole other kettle of fish to feel that Japaneseness in your heart, to be willing to die for that country. Once the hot summer of 1937 was in full swing in China, the need to consider this option of conscripting them into the Japanese army took on a higher level of importance. They were going to be needed in all kinds of ways to promote the war effort, including, later on, engaging in suicide missions on the battlefield. There was no one big ribbon-cutting ceremony for the launch of Kominka. Everyone was able to get a clear whiff of it by the end of 1936. By the time of the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the movement was quite palpable. One dead giveaway was the removal of Chinese-language newspapers from the newsstands and outlawing their circulation. Shintoism, being the state religion of Japan, was steamrolled out across the island. Taiwan local residents suddenly noticed shrines going up all over the place. They were even encouraged to maintain kamidana in their own homes. These were little mini Shinto altars. The people were strongly pushed in the direction of embracing this religion. But you know how it is. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. A lot of people did some lip-syncing for the sake of their own survival. And it wasn't enough just to promote Shintoism. The other religions had to go. Buddhism, Taoism, weren't exactly outlawed, but they were suppressed. And local folk religions, too. Japanese authorities, under Kobayashi Seizo's orders, went into villages and towns and smashed local temples. Today, about 4% of the people living in Taiwan are Protestant or Catholic. That's about a 50-50 split. But back when the Kominka movement was in full swing, eh, not so many Christians yet in Taiwan. So the Japanese caught a break there. But not so in Korea. Christianity had planted some deep roots there by the 1930s, and many Koreans eh, weren't so willing to turn their back on Jesus. 
Designating Japanese as the national language also came as part of the deal. Up till now, it had been taught in schools. No one was under any pressure to learn it or attain fluency. Now you had to. And your future depended on it, too, especially if you had any aspirations to rise up in the system or have access to powerful friends. Even the indigenous people had to learn Japanese. The teaching of classical Chinese in schools was banned. And again, over in Korea, eh, they got the same treatment. One interesting thing to note, school enrollment in Taiwan was the second highest in Asia, far ahead of China. In 1937, about 37% of Taiwanese spoke Kokugo, the national Japanese language. Kokugo is Guoyu in Chinese. And that reached 51% by 1940 and 80% by 1943. Now, Speaking Japanese is a subjective statement. What portion of these people were fluent or literate, I can't say. But this is why you hear about so many people whose parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents who lived in Taiwan during the time of the Japanese colonial rule. That's why they spoke Japanese. On February 11th, 1940, came another big component of the Kominka movement. This was Kaisei Mei. The Mandarin for this is Gaixing Ming or officially replacing one's Chinese name with a Japanese name. Now, this option wasn't open to everyone. (laughs) Yeah, it was invitation only, and the Japanese established a pretty high bar as far as who was qualified for Kaisei Mei. It was open to families, not individuals. So your immediate family had to have the equivalent of a very high social credit score to enjoy this option and all the benefits it brought in colonial Taiwan. In Chinese culture, taking on new names as one got older was a pretty common thing, especially with officials, artists, aristocrats, and intellectuals. But changing one's surname was something one didn't do except under the most peculiar and special of circumstances. But when taking on a Japanese name, you dropped the Chinese surname and took on a completely new one. And in the end, eh, maybe 2% of the population successfully took advantage of the Kaisei Mei system. So these were two of the three main aspects of Kominka. The National Language Movement, the Kaisei Mei name-changing program, and there was one more which called for volunteering to be drafted into the Imperial Japanese Army with a set of air quotes around the word, voluntary. Now, before I talk about that, let me mention one group of true warriors who stood out from this time. And these were the Takasago volunteers, the Gaosha Yongdui. The Japanese used the blanket term Takasago for all the mountain-dwelling indigenous people. The Japanese had had enough bloody run-ins with these people over the decades to know they were unbelievable survivalists and guerrilla fighters. The Japanese military saw in these indigenous people soldiers they could drop behind enemy lines and operate like a Delta Force or special ops unit in the most inhospitable jungles and mountains of New Guinea, the Solomons, and the Philippines. And they'd be very effective in killing American and Australian troops trying to take and hold all these islands in the Pacific and the seas of Southeast Asia. The Japanese officers knew these people were ideal and knew how to live off the land without the need for logistical support. They spoke Japanese, were familiar with the culture. They were perfect. There's no exact number of how many of these Takasago volunteers served, but 
It numbered in the thousands. During the most challenging times for Japan in 1944-1945, the Takasago volunteers were called upon to carry out these daring and extremely desperate missions. There's a few hundred of them who are honored at the Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo. Ukraine has only resisted Russian aggression for nine months as of this recording. But China? Well, they had to face Japan's military onslaught by themselves for 53 months before the USA and the Allies joined in the hostilities. Taiwan was in an interesting position. Though overwhelmingly an ethnic Chinese populace, they were still part of Japan and were expected to fight on Japan's side. Their loyalty eh, was a mixed bag. Some had sincere feelings of loyalty towards the Japanese emperor. Some did not, and some faked it, I'm sure. Not everyone felt patriotism towards China, maybe to their ancestral towns and villages in Fujian, but not beyond that. But because of the way past history played out, we'll see how Taiwan got dragged into this cataclysm on what ultimately became the losing side. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As I said, Taiwanese were early on being recruited in all kinds of non-combatant roles, especially as interpreters. There wasn't enough trust in these Taiwanese soldiers yet to allow them to carry a gun around their colonial masters. But when 1944 rolled around, eh, Japanese weren't so picky. By April 1945, so desperate will Japan's situation be, an all-out general conscription was enforced on Taiwan. These Taiwanese soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy fought mostly in China and the Philippines. Of the more than 200,000 who fought for Japan, 50,000 were listed as missing or killed in action. 2,000 came home disabled, 21 were executed for war crimes, and 147 were imprisoned. These Taiwanese men who fought on Japan's side were only one of among a myriad of tragedies and injustices. Of the couple hundred thousand women forced by the Japanese military into sexual slavery since 1931, Well, Taiwanese women were among that number. Even they didn't get off easy. I remember when the American Vietnam War vets returned home. No one was thanking them for their service. And for these Taiwanese Imperial Japanese Army troops, when it was all over in the summer of 1945, they carried an unsightly taint that was impossible to wipe away. The truth was that Most of these soldiers enlisted in the Japanese army out of desperation or due to coercion. Their destinies were blown in whatever direction the winds of war sent them. Because of that uniform they wore, either willingly or unwillingly, they were considered traitors to the Chinese nation and people. A fair number of them will attempt to find redemption by fighting for the nationalists when all-out civil war breaks out. Along with the hundreds of Takasago volunteers, there were 27,000 of these Taiwanese soldiers and 21,000 Koreans who were honored at the Yasukuni Shrine. 
Throughout the war, Japan used Taiwan as a military staging base for all kinds of operations, including the invasion of southern China. And just east of Jilong in today's Ruifang district was the Jinguangshi or Kinkaseki POW camp. It's not as well known as the other notorious World War II prisoner of war camps run by the Japanese. But the conditions at Kinkaseki were as inhumane and horrific as anywhere else. After Singapore fell to the Japanese in February 1942, some of the captured soldiers were incarcerated in Changi Prison, where Singapore's airport is today. Some got sent to Taiwan. About 4,350 Allied soldiers bunked down every night there for a stretch. Kinkaseki was used as a labor camp, and most prisoners got sent to work in the mines. There was lots of copper and gold, and the Japanese worked these POWs to death trying to extract it. Besides the hardships in the mines, they were also made to do all kinds of other backbreaking work. And the food, the conditions they lived under, are too terrible to even mention. As you know, the war in the Pacific involved no small amount of jungle warfare. Well, Japan's training center was located in Taiwan. Qilong and Kaohsiung were the two main ports used by the Japanese Navy. And they had been constructed by the Japanese as commercial ports, but had been repurposed for the war effort. The invasions that began in December 1942 of present-day Malaysia and the Philippines had been launched from these two ports. Taiwan wasn't spared from aerial bombing during World War II. Because of the military installations there, it was a natural target for American bombers. When the invasion of the Philippines and Okinawa took place, Taiwan got hit hard. On Thanksgiving Day, 1943, Claire Chenault's pilots led a raid on a Japanese base in Taiwan, destroying 42 aircraft in 12 minutes. By late 1944, U.S. planes were regularly bombing Taiwan. On May 31, 1945, there was a deadly bombing raid on Taipei that ended up killing 3,000 people and injured more than 10,000. Many prominent government buildings were hit and some destroyed. 116 B-24s dropped 316 tons of bombs on Taipei and Yilan to the southeast. And thanks to Allied bombing of Taiwan, so much infrastructure had been destroyed, it delivered a knockout punch to the Taiwanese economy. Agriculture, manufacturing, coal production, energy, everything was affected. By 1943, the Allied powers thought the time had come to start preparing for the future. In November of that year, the Cairo conference took place between Churchill, FDR, and Chiang Kai-shek. The purpose of the meeting was to discuss the matter of post-war Asia. They called for Japan's unconditional surrender and the return of all occupied lands. And this included Manchuria and Taiwan. And later on at the Potsdam conference, these terms will be reconfirmed. And when it all ended aboard the USS Missouri on September 4th, 1945... The Japanese formally surrendered. As you could imagine, the end of World War II and what was going to follow caused quite a bit of consternation on Taiwan. For most people, they had only known a life of living under Japanese rule. Many people spoke Japanese, especially those who worked in the government and were among the elites of society. Very little, if any, Mandarin was spoken on Taiwan at this point. And later on, when the retreat from the mainland happens, there will be devastating communication problems that lead to all kinds of unintended results. 
The big day for the surrender of Japan in Taiwan was set for October 25, 1945, at today's Zhongshan Hall, and back then was called the Taihoku Kokaido. Representing Japan was the final governor general of Taiwan, Ando Rikichi. Besides Ando's claim to fame as the final governor during Taiwan's 50 years in control of the island, he's also remembered for invading French Indochina in September of 1940. Operating without orders from the top, he led troops into French Tonkin, and after defeating them, he put a blockade in place at the port of Haiphong. Ando Rikichi maintained he was trying to close holes in the supply chain of arms and munitions coming into southern China from Indochina. And the French were predictably outraged, with Pearl Harbor still a year away. The Japanese had to weather this diplomatic storm, and it was this incident that directly led to the oil embargo that pushed Japan into doing what they later ended up doing. Nando Rikichi got in trouble for this from on high and had to lay low until he was called upon in December 1944 to serve as governor general of Taiwan. Accepting Japan's surrender on the Chinese side was one of the major figures in the KMT going back to the 1920s, both in the military and the government. This was Chen Yi. There were two Chen Yis from this time. There was the communist Chen Yi, who went on to become one of the ten marshals of the PLA and foreign minister of the PRC, and this Chen Yi of the KMT. Now, he made his mark in Zhejiang and Fujian. As governor of Fujian, he was responsible for cross-straits relations and represented the Republic of China at the 1935 Taiwan Expo. And he came back from that spectacle and reported to Jiang about all the wonders he saw and how admirable the Taiwanese standard of living was. Because of his experience during his governorship of Fujian, Chen Yi was selected to be the first post-war governor of Taiwan. And that's what brought him to this signing ceremony on that day in October 1945. Together with Ando Rikichi, they signed the instrument of surrender that turned sovereignty of Taiwan over to the Republic of China. Chen Yi thereupon declared October 25th to be Retrocession Day, a new national holiday. Still is today. Right here, with the signing ceremony at the Taihoku Kokaido, the beginnings of the Taiwan problem start to percolate beneath the surface. Many Taiwan independence-minded historians contend that in order for Taiwan to have been transferred from Japan to the ROC, the Republic of China, a formal international treaty was first necessary. But there wasn't any. There was going to be one, but the nationalists ended up losing the Civil War and were forced to retreat. And so this matter was left unresolved and became the linchpin of those who subscribed to the theory of the undetermined status of Taiwan, the Taiwan Di Wei Wei Ding Lun. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump forward just a bit to get this matter of the handover of sovereignty done. With retrocession out of the way in 1945, all that remained was the formal peace treaty. And this wasn't taken care of till six years later on September 8, 1951, at the San Francisco Peace Conference, with ratification taking place the following year on April 28, 1952. This San Francisco Peace Conference was where Japan officially renounced sovereignty over Taiwan. And with that, sovereignty of Taiwan was handed to the Republic of China. Now, I would say handed back instead of handed to, except that Taiwan up to that point had never been part of the Republic of China. 
when the Republic was founded on the first day of the year, 1912, Taiwan had already been in Japanese hands for 17 years. Also signed on that date was the Treaty of Taipei. Here is where Japan formally renounced all claims to Taiwan, Penghu, the Spratly Islands, known as the Nansha Islands, and the Paracel Islands, a.k.a. the Shisha Islands, and all agreements made prior to December 9, 1941, were made null and void. Let me just read Article 10 of the Treaty of Taipei. It went like this, quote, For the purposes of the present treaty, nationals of the Republic of China shall be deemed to include all the inhabitants and former inhabitants of Taiwan and Penghu and their descendants who are of the Chinese nationality in accordance with the laws and regulations which have been or may hereafter be enforced by the Republic of China in Taiwan and Penghu. Once again, in the Treaty of Taipei, the matter of providing for a legal transfer of sovereignty of Taiwan from Japan to China was swept under the rug. While both the Treaty of San Francisco and Taipei had provisions for the formal renunciation of Japan's claims of sovereignty over Taiwan, neither treaty provided for any mechanism of transfer of sovereignty from Japan to China. If you listen to enough CHP episodes, you know that in 1945, one war ended for China and another one began. The KMT had been playing whack-a-mole with the Chinese communists since 1927. Eighteen years had passed since the Shanghai Massacre. By 1945, everyone knew, except the Americans who were trying to referee the whole CCP-KMT conflict, that only one team was going to be left standing by the time the last bullet was fired. Prior to 1945, people in the know knew. Civil war was a certainty, and both sides had been preparing for it quietly for years I did a whole four-part series on the Civil War, if you want to freshen up on those events. For the purposes of this History of Taiwan series, let's look at the stepping stones that led to the Great Retreat. One of the most important points to keep in mind here is that following Retrocession Day in October 1945, nationalist troops started pouring into Taiwan. And as we've seen up to this moment in Taiwan history, the people from the Chinese mainland who had migrated there into Penghu, of course, who had lived there ever since the very beginning, even before the Ming Dynasty, they only came from a few places in Fujian, Xiamen, Changzhou, Quanzhou, and the surrounding environs. Or they came from Mei County or thereabouts in eastern Guangdong, and it had always been that way. When the Dutch came, these were the ones who the Nederlanders interacted with. The Spanish, the French, the Americans, all the foreigners who came to Taiwan to trade. Hokkien or Hakka were the languages spoken by the local Chinese they interacted with. But starting now, that was no longer going to be the case. First of all, Jiang Kai-shek and his gang were Zhejiang people. I mentioned Chen Yi just now. He was also a Zhejiang guy from Shaoxing. Jiang and his A-team were all Shanghai Zhejiang people, and they didn't speak Hokkien. So right away, we have the beginnings of a debilitating communication problem. Chen Yi, as soon as he sat down in the governor's office, was confounded by this problem. All these Han Chinese bureaucrats and officials who knew how to run the government all spoke not a lick of Mandarin. These Taiwanese people shared a common Chinese culture, but what happened right from the get-go was a problem. 
destroyed bridges, buildings, roads, airfields, other public infrastructure damaged during the war. As long as the funding was there, it's easy to fix those kinds of problems. But people? Oh boy, you know how they are. 1945, it was clear to everyone living on Taiwan there was a new sheriff in town. You know, the Japanese weren't there for like uh, two or three years. They ran Taiwan for 50 years. 50 years ago today was 1973. I was just starting high school. That was ages ago. We saw in parts five and six all the anti-Japanese uprisings. It took a long time for the Taiwanese people to get used to them. And now, as soon as everyone was speaking Japanese and calling Taipei, Taioku, now everything got changed back to pre-1895. Well, as I said, Jiang put Chen Yi in charge, who, theoretically at least, thanks to his past experience, was exactly the man for the job. Jiang Kai-shek left it up to Chen Yi to go in there and whip that place into shape. No one in the KMT knew yet in 1945 that Taiwan was going to end up being their final destination. So let's insert the imaginary CHP bookmark right here and pick up next time with the Chinese Civil War and the moment Jiang Kai-shek has his first inkling that he had better prime that Taiwan pump, so to speak, and, and get it ready for himself and a couple million other squatters, just in case. For the Taiwanese people, those 300,000 Japanese who had migrated there and lived amongst them, <laughs> was nothing compared to what they had coming. By the way, after the war, all these hundreds of thousands of Japanese people were repatriated back to their homeland. So, next time we convene, we'll revisit 1946 to 1949. Anyone alive today who went through that historic great retreat from China to Taiwan, and I've met a few, will never forget those years. Come back next time and hear why. Once again, if you'd like to dodge all those ads and get these shows sometimes weeks early and support this aging history podcaster, I invite you to consider Patreon or CHP Premium. Details are at the show notes. Okay, enough of this panhandling. It's hard to get through a podcast show these days without someone trying to get something out of you. Hope you all got something out of this episode. This here is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from my usual recording studio here in lovely Los Angeles, California. Please mull it over and consider coming back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.